the healthcare sector experienced an average of more than 1,600 attacks per week in Q1 2023, a year-on-year -year increase of 22%. This makes the healthcare the, most, the third most targeted industry in 2023 so far, ahead of finance, insurance, and communications. This is according to a Checkpoint research recently revealed on the World Economic Forum website. It's actually pretty interesting to see that threat actors are monetizing the healthcare sector using the sensitivity and confidentiality of the personal healthcare information and making huge ransom demands from hospitals because of the crucial operations and, and importance of the operations to treat patients. What are your thoughts about it, Simon? Those are striking numbers, Gilad, and uh, we have to bear in mind those are hospitals, insurers, service providers. Um, I saw in another report by Sophos that 94% of the ransomware attacks actually impacted their ability to operate. And in most cases caused loss of business and revenue. And we're talking about at least a week to recover and close to $2 million in remediation costs. That's incredibly striking indeed. Incredibly because we're speaking about human lives at stake. And this is why today we're going to speak with Errol Weiss, the CISO of Health Isaac. Hi, Errol. How are you? Hello. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Simon, you too as well. Even before introducing yourself, let's speak about, you know, information sharing what it means when it comes to cybersecurity and how does it really help lots of organizations? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just a little bit of history, I think is important um, and to talk about like what the heck an ISAC is, um, you know, besides being the world's worst acronym, uh, you know, it stands Indeed. for Information Sharing and Analysis Center. And yeah, I think, I think it's important just to put the context in here in terms of the history, you know, the, the idea for these started in the mid-1990s when after the U.S. government actually did a study and realized that, oh, my gosh, like 85 percent of the critical infrastructure was owned and operated by the private sector. And if you flash back to those times, hey, the Internet was starting to become a thing. Businesses were starting to connect to the Internet. At-home banking was starting to become a thing as well. And they realized all of this infrastructure was likely going to be connected to the Internet. and and at the time, they already saw the vulnerabilities and issues that were that were happening across uh, the infrastructures. So they really wanted to ensure that 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 the private sector, the critical infrastructure, were, were doing something proactive when it came to th threats, vulnerabilities, and trying to be secure and resilient. So they created this concept of the ISACs, which was about really encouraging the private sector to share with each other when it came to threats, vulnerabilities, and incidents. Um, so essentially like, you know, neighborhood watch program, but, uh, but the virtual version of that. And so that, that's really where it all started. And, and the first one that got rolled out was the financial services ISAC in 1999. There was a big push at the time to get it out ahead of uh, Y2K because of all the fear that, you know, all the computers were going to die that, that, uh, yeah. December, the evening of December 31. Of course, nothing happened. Um, but, uh, but that was a little bit of the history there. And I have a quick question about that because, you know, if we're speaking about information sharing nowadays uh, where it's much more trivial and makes sense and many of us right. already understand the leverage, speaking about it in the 
1990s or the 2000, the early 2000s. So would anybody really, uh, really cooperate with this? Because, you know, uh, early days of the internet, early days of still no term as cybersecurity per se, but, you know, information uh, security and, and things like that. So how successful was it in the early days? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really a great point. And I think, you know, there are elements of this were already happening, right? People were getting together. There were, uh, you know, I'll call it like regional clubs that were getting together, talking to each other, meeting occasionally and sharing, you know, issues, challenges, concerns, whatever. It was definitely a lot slower. Um, and, and the early days of the ISAC definitely had its challenges in terms of uh, the, the sharing that was happening, right? I, I told you the, the FSI SAC launched in, on October 1st, 1999, turned it on, and we all sat back and waited. Nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. it, was, it was crickets. So it's, it really comes down to you know, how, how do you get the first ones to start, to start chiming in, starting to get people to contribute. And I'll tell you, you know, we've, we've got the, the same challenges today as people – People have a hard time getting started. In fact, you know, we just literally a few days ago released an update to this paper that we published uh, uh, three years ago, but the, we just updated it now on um, best practices on information sharing. And it's all about, you know, hey, how do I get started with this? You know, exactly. it, it's it talks about like um, the usual challenges that you have. You know, you go to your boss and say, hey, I want to share information when we have an incident. And they're like, what? Are you crazy? You, know, you can't do that. <laughs> So, so how do you overcome those challenges? And then the even harder ones is when you take that same request to your internal counsel and your lawyers are like, mm, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you equip these uh, cybersecurity leaders with, with the right arguments, with the right approach to convincing others? Because typically now when you meet a, a CISO or someone involved in as a practitioner, he understands the value of sharing, but how do you uh, how do you empower him to convince the rest yeah, of the organization? Yeah, we talk about that. Yeah, we talk about it in that paper. I think there's a couple of secrets to the success there. Um, one is like I mentioned, uh, uh, general counsel, because they usually, um, you know, I don't want to cast any you know wide stereotypes, but they usually have very limited cybersecurity experience. So one of the things that we did was we invited them to like tabletop exercises to participate during an exercise and actually see what it's all about. So, hey, we just got attacked. Hey, we think this is what's going on. Here's the indicators. You know what? I want to share them with the ISAC. And, and then even use the tabletop to show that, hey, I just shared the indicators with the ISAC. And then one of our peer companies just came back to us and said, hey, we just saw the same thing. And here's what we did. Yeah. So, so there's the benefit, right, that we can demonstrate live during a tabletop that says, wow, like we can actually like recover quicker if we're able to get out there and share this stuff and get some help from some of our friends. So, so the tabletop exercise helps a lot. And then the other one that was really big was, um, you know, I, I'll use the big word governance structure, but it really mm -hmm. comes down to like, Hey, create a table that shows exactly what you want to share. You know, I want to share malicious IP addresses um, that are attacking us. I want to share malicious emails that we get that have the sender ID, the malicious URLs that are in the email, the malicious file attachments that were on the email, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Put that in a table, uh, describe what it is, who owns the data internally, who you intend to share it with, 
and who has the authority to release that information. And then you can even you know jam some examples into that um, to show exactly what that might look like. And if you put that in a table, black and white, piece of paper, get that in front of your boss, in front of legal counsel, and they look at that and say, okay, it's not as scary as what I initially thought, right? Because when you go back into the beginning, what I said before, right, you want to share information that we're having an incident, and everybody's like, there's no way we're sharing that stuff. But if you put it in that table, and it's and it, and it looks a lot less threatening, um, and you can show the, the benefits that, hey, we might actually get some help during an incident, I think it becomes a, a much better argument. I think that basically thinking about it as an outsider, uh, trying trying to think objectively, you know, it is some kind of a, of a scary uh, concept when uh, you go to your boss, you say, hey, we had an incident, let's share information. Okay, who are you sharing it with? Yeah, all of our competitors. So right. the concept for itself, for those that are not familiar, is, is kind of uh, uh, scary, but uh, although... We can we can definitely says say it's it's working, uh, and going back to the early days, were you part of an Isaac back then in the 1990s? So it was actually uh, with the service provider that created the Isaac and and provided that service to the financial sector. So I was actually working for that service provider. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what uh, and tell us a bit about your way towards. Uh, Health Isaac today were the, the stations in between. Yeah, so um, so after that role with the ISAC, after after essentially helping to get that thing rolled out, um, I found my way um, uh, still doing consulting services for um, large commercial companies like the banking sector, insurance, manufacturing, etc. At some point along the way, found my, myself. Um, with a, with an opportunity to uh, to join Citibank, and it was uh, was kind of a uh, I'll say almost an undefined role in the information security organization, but uh, kind of had a good feeling that uh, that I could participate on things like the incident response team, um, help out on various aspects uh, that, that were under the information security organization, and then that that role kind of evolved uh, suddenly and became. Um, uh, the the uh, the idea became to create the cyber threat intelligence capability for Citibank. So I uh, started that in 2008 and uh, eventually hired uh, staff to help create and run that. That team grew internationally. By the time I left the city in 2016, we had like 40 people globally. So it was pretty pretty interesting uh, uh, journey there. And how was remote management back then? Just I mean, now it's uh, yeah. it's changed quite a lot. But how, how did that work? Yeah. yeah, I felt you know really groundbreaking at the time. But you know, it's this is really neat because you know, City was super supportive of uh, the remote work concept, and um, you know to the point where you know we had like digital phones. I had a phone sitting in my house that connected. You know, it looked like I had a, a New York City phone number. Um, uh, all of the the uh, remote teleconference capability on uh, early days of teleconferencing, uh, we supported that so we could you know connect in much like we do here today on Zoom. Um, so they were really supportive of that. They even provided training. Uh, you know there was I'd say groundbreaking training back in the day about you know learning how to how to effectively lead, manage, and and run meetings remotely and what that was all about. So you know. It, 
they were pretty supportive, which is huge, right? Because you want a boss who supports the idea that you can work remotely and not have to wonder like where you are. You're not sitting in the office right next to me. Mm -hmm. um, so that there's that element of trust there. But, um, it, you know, and then, and, and for me, I had learned earlier in my career also from another uh, mentor that you got to get yourself to headquarters on a regular basis. So I felt like I was I was in New York quite a bit. I was visiting with uh, my peers and other parts of the organization on a pretty regular basis. And I used to love it when people would say, like, oh, I had no idea you were, um, you know, headquartered here in New York with us, you know, that you were remote. And I was like, good job. Well done. <laughs> I did what I was trying to do. Awesome. You mentioned the word uh, trust, which uh, it's not only about, uh, you know, you need it to, to be a, a, an efficient and uh, a trustworthy part of, of a team, but also definitely within an ISAC. And you've been with the Health ISAC since, I, I see, April 2019, correct? Right. And, right. and you've, you know, you've taken Health Isaac also throughout the uh, COVID era, which is still with us, but not as as it used to be. And and I'm, you know, kind of wondering how do you, uh, how do you gain trust in in other uh, competitors of yours, peers from the industry, during a worldwide crisis, uh, working from home, and persuade people to share the latest uh, cyber attack. Yeah, it's another great one. Um, you know, and then back to that paper, um, which I want to make available to your listeners. So we should yes, definitely please. have a link for that. You know, because it's it, it talks about, of course, it's branded Health ISAC because we published it. But, you know, it's really in any sector, anybody can use that paper to uh, to set up an information sharing program. But that paper talks about tr developing trust amongst pe people to help facilitate information sharing. Because, yeah, to your point, right? Uh, let's take the extreme example. When you're dealing with an incident and you um, are putting together information about what's happening to you and you're describing the incident, maybe even the impact to your organization, and you're about to click on that submit button, there's that little sweating, scary point where, you know, do I really know who's on the other side of this? Who's going to get this? And do I trust them that they're going to keep it confidential and protect me uh, and not expose this information publicly, right? Because nobody wants to see that happen. So, uh, so it talks about how to develop trust and how to how to how to um, how to achieve that. And you know, one of the ways that we talk about it is get involved locally. Find there's there's information sharing organizations. I, I talked about it you know, when we first started the uh, the podcast here about getting together locally. There's lots of great clubs, organizations, information sharing um, chapters that that appear locally um, that you should find and get involved with. And that's and that's one of the ways that you can meet other people. Uh, within the Health ISAC, for example, we do four conferences a year, two in the US, one in Europe, one in Asia PAC. And it's also about getting people together. We, we, we designed those um, conferences to really have a good amount of uh, quality in, uh, networking time and social time so that people can get to know each other. And uh, we also do a number of regional workshops uh, for the same reason, creating some of that, those networking opportunities. And again, it's, it's getting the humans together, seeing the whites of the eyes of each other's eyes and, 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 and establishing that personal relationship. So when I have that incident, I'm about to click on the submit button. I can trust who's on the other end of it. Now, to your point about COVID, yeah, now that put the screeching halt on all of those meetings, couldn't get together anymore. 
so um you know i think what we what we did was like so many we, we stepped up the virtual meetings and virtual sessions and webinars and tried to be innovative and creative in terms of like you know it's not just a one-way webinar where hey dial in and listen to somebody talk about some interesting topic but it was you know how do we get people together more socially on on zoom for example and, and have some chit chat time so that we can meet and talk and and share experiences and so even in the early days of covid we were getting people together uh friday afternoons to talk about hey what are the challenges that you're dealing with with today you know like the big one was right uh today or, or yesterday nobody remote work today now dealing with covid 100 percent of the workforce is remote now how do we deal with that lots of challenges right so there was a lot of good conversation about that yeah, and indeed many also stay remote, uh, so it means that it does work for some, and it holds its its own cybersecurity challenges for sure. That also the healthcare uh, sector needs to deal with. Um, Simon and I shared some pretty striking metrics about the uh, uh, cyber uh, attacks against the healthcare sector, and the challenges that that uh, are are this this sector is dealing with on a daily basis, uh, tactically and strategically. I wonder, uh, as a leading cybersecurity entity within Health Isaac, what are your thoughts about the current threat landscape to the uh, health sector? And how do you see that information sharing as a you know very strong uh, pillar within, uh, within a security program of each of the companies there? Yeah, it's... Uh... The the um, the attacks are just um, really unfortunate, especially when we see them in the healthcare sector. We, we've done um, an annual threat report. In fact, I can make that available um, as well. Love to do that. And one of the things that we did in that in that annual threat report is we surveyed. Uh, this past year, we had over 300 responses, and we asked people, "Hey, what were the top threats that you perceived in 2022, and what do you think is going to be in 2023?" And, um, you know, just to kind of level set across the, the sector. And so, you know, the top five things were, were ransomware, phishing, third-party breaches, data breaches in general, and then social engineering attacks. So, you know, probably not surprised to hear all that, but still I think, you know, ransomware is definitely top of mind. And then when, when um, you know, thinking about that and looking at to see what's been happening even, even recently here in 2023, you know, as we have seen, ransomware still continue to evolve, still get more uh, creative, let's say, um, you know, leading now to the triple extortion, right, that we're seeing in ransomware happening today now, where it's where it's uh, encrypt the data, now steal the data and, and extort people with the threat of releasing it if they don't pay. And then if you still don't pay, I'm going to DDoS your website so you're out of business. Um, or go to your uh, third party uh, right entities, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Another great way to, to to get around all that. Yeah. Um. So it's you know it's really unfortunate we see that, but you know what I think is really striking um is that we've got I looked at, I was looking at the numbers last week. In the last three years, we're tracking like twelve thousand um ransomware incidents globally. Wow. But that's total. That's across all the sectors. Only five percent of them are impacting the healthcare sector. So I, I think I, I thought that was pretty interesting. And, um, you know, I don't wanna blame the media or anything, but, you know, certainly like 
almost all the stories we read about are all healthcare sector impact, yeah. um, you know, every day. Right. And, yeah. and I get it. You know, um, it, there's the human element to it. You know, ransomware hits a hospital. They have to divert patients because they, yeah. they you know, they can't take any new patients in or there's other services that get impacted. Pa you know, certainly patient safety comes to mind. And hey, that impacts every single one of us. You, 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 me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Nobody wants to see that happening. So it's certainly a big story. And I can understand why the media makes such a big deal of it. But, you know, like I said, we're seeing it happening in every sector. And so, you know, small businesses that aren't prepared to handle this are going out of business because they can't recover quickly enough. And unfortunately, even in 2023, we saw a hospital system uh, that had to go out of business as well because they couldn't recover from a ransomware incident. So it's, yeah. really, it's really unfortunate. Now we've got a community of people that um, have to travel further for healthcare because of that, of that closure. So it's, all you know, a lot of human impact here, unfortunately. I definitely agree about the human impact, and this is, in my opinion, what also makes it very uh, attractive to the media. Uh, something that you can uh, sympathize with, uh, thinking of uh, this uh, uh, ill person that is not being able to get the treatment, and something that uh, each of us, from their own families and loved ones, can uh, connect to, relate to. Uh, unlike uh, other industries that you know others might find uh, uh, less important to their own lives, although for each of them we can we can name several uh, you know direct impact that might happen to them as well. Uh, right. But but definitely very concerning to to see that. I've mainly experienced information sharing as it relates to you know indicators and and cybercrime. But when it comes to fraud, I mean, what what do you see as the challenges in sharing information there? Maybe packaging it and making it digestible to to a global audience. Uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of great work happening um, in the uh, fraud information sharing when I was a part of um, FSI SAC through my membership of places like Citibank and Bank of America. And I'll uh, I'll do a shout out to uh, my my good friend and buddy uh, Kevin Thompson who worked uh, we worked together at, at uh, Citibank and Bank of America for a bit and he just did some really great innovative creative work on the fraud side when it came to like intelligence and information sharing and and helping to to to, to really you know I'd say like you know going back to the early days when we were creating that cyber threat intelligence capability within City. Um, I'll almost say we stumbled on accident by um, threat intelligence providers that were like, hey, um, we have a whole bunch of credit cards that we just got off the underground. Uh, looks like they might be Citibank cards. Would you be interested in them? And we're like, yeah, sure. You know, and then we kind of figure out what we would do with them at that point. But and, and then that that grew into this incredible program that by the end, by the time I left there, we probably had received like a you know, no joke, like millions of stolen uh, Citibank credit cards at some point. And, you know, the banks are able to take that information and then, you know, not they won't necessarily shut a credit card down because it appeared on the underground, but maybe uh, use that as part of the fraud algorithm to say, you know, now there's a more likelihood that that credit card will be used in a fraudulent transaction. So, you know, there was a lot of great stuff that, that, that we did in terms of helping to, um, to uh, slow down, you know, the bad guys when it came to fraud, 
And then, you know, the real trick was, you know, how do we get the banks to collaborate between each other and share that kind of information? Because it's not just the cyber guys we're dealing with anymore. It's the fraud guys on, in, inside those teams. And so how do we get them to be a part of the information sharing? And so I think, you know, it's been a slower process, but I, but by, by this point, you know, I've been out of at the FS world uh, long enough that I, I don't know exactly all the strides that they've made since then, but there's, there's been a lot of good stuff. Like, I know the uh, business email compromise uh, indicator sharing that's that's been happening. That's been great. And then, like I said, a lot of the fr anti-fraud sharing stuff that's been happening too has been wonderful. Outside of maybe the U.S., and that's also historically the role of FSISAC, where there's there's a lot of information sharing tailored to smaller financial entities, you know, uh, credit unions and 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 let's say organizations that don't necessarily have a, a big cybersecurity uh, structure in place or even someone owning the subject right. outside the US most most financial institutions are are quite sizable i mean the markets are consolidated so when you deal with a financial uh, service organization you have some kind of IT department information security department when it comes to healthcare i mean globally you must be dealing with very very small entities i mean do you even include private, you know, dental practices, private clinics, small providers, because I'm guessing those are the most at risk. Those are the people who have incredibly valuable data and yet do not monetize it. Like they don't really understand how valuable it is to other yeah. ill-intentioned people. So how do you get to these people? How do you make them, you know, how do you make the subject digestible and actionable to them? Yeah, yeah another great point. Um, yeah, because yeah, as, as we look across our membership, just as you talked about in the financial services space, you know, uh, the needs of the individual organizations and members are are very different for the reasons that you cite, right? You, you're dealing with some very large organizations who have incredibly mature, solid infosec teams, for example, all the way down to the you know two person shop who um, does not even have an IT manager, right? Then maybe they've got somebody that's coming in and they're outsourcing all those kinds of services. So, so um, uh, the financial services sector did the same thing. Um, and, and again, we, uh, I was there, I observed all this happening, right? So learn from the best and, and, and implement uh, and stole all those ideas as well. <laughs> and implementing the things that work here at Health ISAC, for example, so we're definitely looking at, um, at, at it differently. And so that we want to be able to create services that are, that, that target those small, medium businesses. And so it's, it's not going to be about like, Hey, there's a new vulnerability. You need to patch, patch, patch. Hey, you need to make sure you got a firewall in place. It's going to be like more awareness type messages for those organizations, you know? Hey, here's here's the latest way that the bad guys are fooling people to click on an email, right? Like, you know, like like today, literally, right? Those the, the QR phishing scams that are going on right now, right? You get an email, it's got a QR code in it. Hey, Simon, you need to reset your credentials. Click on the, you know, scan the QR code to, to reset your creds. And people are falling for that. So so how do we get the message out about people that the bad guys have switched to QR code scams? Um you know, it, it's stuff like that to really address them at the level that they can deal with. And so uh, everything from that to maybe um, webinars catered to, again, just more training, more awareness type of messaging. 
Um, and then also uh, at the at the work group level, which is where a lot of the great things happen inside an ISAC. You know, this is where you get sort of the birds of a feather together to share with each other, uh, collaborate with each other. Uh, we have some of those working groups that are creating things like policy documents, process documents, uh, internal response plans, for example. And so they can create a template that any of these small, uh, medium-sized businesses can use. And the neat thing is, right, because it's Health ISAC, it's catered to the health sector and it's it's got more health sector elements to it. So we talk about things like maybe medical devices and and dealing with patient health information and maybe healthcare regulation in the U.S. or Europe as 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 a result of that, and things to be sensitive to. So, you know, some great starter material for organizations like that. I want to make a full disclosure also, and to say that I'm I'm a witness of uh, also the the success of uh, Health Isaac from from the inside. I've I've uh, experienced it, and I just want to say that uh, many of the things that Errol mentioned, uh, I can say they're true, and <laughs> that the working groups are are awesome, and the information sharing really works. And you know, just on top of what you already said. Um, one of the biggest advantages of uh, an ISAC as a concept is uh, is the added value you get from triple tripling or quadrupling your your team because you have a team of experts from the biggest and 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 most successful uh, uh, companies in the world that are willing to to answer your questions and share information and share experience. And, um, you know, I cannot tell how helpful it could be sometimes when you're in need. And also you can give back to, to the community because in times of COVID, you see wonderful initiatives of, of uh, good people within the ISACs uh, and in other crises for, for other uh, industries as well, where people uh, do a lot in order to help other organizations and NGOs that are, are part of the ISACs, which is incredible. Right. Yeah. And, and, and just to you know, pile on top of that for a moment. Um, so we were talking earlier about how to get started in information sharing and how intimidating it might be sometimes. Um, and, and uh, you know, when you're new at it, you don't know where to get started and you're you're just a little intimidated. Uh, you might be intimidated by the fact, that, as you mentioned, right, that there's these huge organizations out there that have these you know phenomenal information security teams. And I'm just a little guy at a little bank or a little healthcare company, what have I got to offer? So, um, you know, one of the things that really surprised me when I was back at Citibank, for example, um, participating in FSISAC, and I saw a malware analysis report that was put together by someone at a small bank in upstate New York. Thank you, John. Um, I looked at that report and I was like, wow, like how does this guy know all this? Like, where's he getting all this information from? It was amazing. And, um, you know, it just it just shows you that I think everybody's got something to contribute. Everybody's got something to learn. And I would say also that, you know, if it, don't be intimidated by the big guys because they don't know everything. They don't have everything. And exactly. you've got something to add. So that was just a really neat experience. And I hope I can, can encourage somebody to click on that submit button. Don't be don't be scared. Wait, so this <laughs> John is just a smart guy that could do this report by himself. Yeah, I, I'm telling wow. you, he had knowledge that I I was just blown away with. Like, amazing. I, like, I was like, yeah, where are they getting this from? It was just incredible. <laughs> so, off topic a little bit, I think that what makes 
cybersecurity professionals uh, sometimes very attached and more uh, uh, engaged into ISACs is also the kind of uh, uh, threat actors that are that are being monitored and the kind of cyber attacks and, and uh, TTPs being shared and discussed. And this takes us also to uh, state-sponsored groups, APTs. Uh, can you can you say something and tell us a bit about the uh, experience and information sharing on that area within the uh, Isaac? Yeah, I think uh, you know again I go, I'll go back to my earlier career in cyber threat intel and just th thinking about like wow I've got to become like this uh, geopolitical expert now as well because of this role because you never know what country what what uh, current news business item is going to impact the organization. So, um, you know, I, I think hopefully you know, the, listeners out here, the listeners out here to this podcast understand, you know, what that threatscape looks like when we start talking about state-sponsored threat actors like China, Russia, Brazil, North Korea, Iran, and, and on and on and on. You know, and let's let's be honest, right? We have to count the, the United States in there as well, because you know every single country on the planet is doing this. You can and say it, Israel it, if you like. I'm fine with this. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> All right. I was waiting for you to jump in. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, and I and I think like COVID really kind of highlights us uh, again, sort of the human aspect of all of this, right? Brand new pandemic spreading globally quickly. People are struggling to treat. Uh, patients who are getting it in the early days, no vaccine available. People are starting to do the vaccine research, right? So, so, so if you, if we all think about this for a moment, right? Every single one of us is struggling to figure out how we're going to treat patients, keep people alive, and develop a vaccine to save the planet. And um, you know, now we've got countries sponsoring um, espionage to steal any R and D that they can get their hands on when it comes to treating patients, vaccine development, whatnot, so they, they can save their population. So, you know, you, you can understand why some of this espionage happens and, you know, certainly not condoning it, but, you know, I can understand where these, these state-sponsored uh, activities are coming from. You know, certainly in the days of COVID, we definitely saw a lot of phishing attacks, lots of other attacks happening with the intent of capturing information that I, that I described. Um, the other thing I, I would just say, I just recently went through myself. Um, I, I ran through this other podcast, the uh, the Lazarus heist, mm -hmm. and just listened to uh, to that uh, the first two seasons of that. The first season was really about the one the uh, North Koreans attacking the finance sector, and the you know the eighty million million dollar uh, Swift attack that they mm -hmm. almost got away with. They ended up uh, netting out a few million dollars from that one, and then the um, the following year t talks about all the other uh, ransomware and other attacks that they're doing. But, but again, they do a great job in that podcast talking about, you know, again, the motivations of the individuals behind that, why they're doing what they're doing. And then the state North Korea aspects of that as well, in terms of, you know, why are they trying to generate cash, helping to develop the, you know, the nuclear weapons program for North Korea and how they're obtaining parts you know, in the in light of all of the economic sanctions that they're dealing mm -hmm. with. So I, I thought it was pretty interesting. But again, it, it provides some of the background and some of the thinking about what's going on inside the minds of the threat actors. When you are dealing with uh, state-sponsored groups or suspecting that you might be dealing with state-sponsored groups, 
which again could be a very high percentage of worldwide uh, organizations overall but still when you have a good uh, good sus suspect good reason to be sus suspecting for this uh you have to be educated about geopolitical uh, issues. You have to be familiar with what's going on, who, who is against uh, whom and uh, what are they right. after. Um, and you could definitely see that, as you mentioned, during COVID, you could see that uh, now during the uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, war, uh, North Korea and uh, Iran, so on and so forth. Uh, definitely mentioning APT, uh, incidents or APT attacks, uh, I think that uh, you get many exclusive kind of information when you're part of an ISAC and you're, you have uh, trustworthy peers overseas to, to share information with. So kind of empowers also your point about information sharing. To us, it's all common sense. You know, what's the value of information sharing? But could yeah. you maybe... Uh, uh... Spread it out once more for people who have some doubts. You know, what are the benefits, intended and unintended, of, of sharing information with others? Yeah, I think, you know, as we talked about earlier, right, the, the obvious ones to me are about learning about new threats, new vulnerabilities, new incidents, and, you know, use that information to protect your own network. Um, and then the crowdsource capability, right? So even in the case of Health ISAC, you know, you put a question out to the group and you've got 9,000 people out there that could potentially respond. And sometimes it feels like they all do. Um, <laughs> a lot of emails flying around. Um, so, so you know, a lot of great benefit from participating in that network. But, but I'd say, you know, like the like the 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 not so obvious ones um, are things that that I like. You know, I I participate in this. I was in the banking finance sector for 13 years between Bank of America and Citibank, and 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 I was a very active participant in the financial services ISAC. And I, I really feel like, you know, I got so much more out of information sharing by participating and, and observing and learning and, and um, even learning like skills like, like leadership and incident response uh, uh, techniques, for example. You know, again, because, you know, think about it, right? We were in groups, uh, small trusted groups where people, organizations were dealing with incidents under fire. And I could observe what, how, you know, people's behavior while they were dealing with an incident, trying to share, trying to learn, trying to figure out how they were going to respond, uh, remediate the incident that they were dealing with, and maybe even dealing with the media because, you know, sometimes it's pretty obvious that an organization is under attack. So how are they dealing with their media response? And again, I could see all of that, witness that happening live um, in that individual and learn from them and say like, you know, gee, if that ever happened to me, that's how I would want to act, you know, during an incident. So, you know, a lot of great learning opportunity and it's not just technical, it's, it's definitely some soft skills there too. So definitely encourage, you know, people, as I said earlier, it's, you get a lot more out of it than you put into it. And uh, it's not just help ISAC. It's not just all the other ISACs that are out there. There's lots of other communities and information sharing organizations that you can participate with. So find it and, and participate. Definitely echoing that. Thank you so much, Errol, for being with us today. We really appreciate you uh, jumping by and uh, it was super interesting. Thank you. Yeah, it's great seeing you guys again. I miss you. <laughs> we need you back. <laughs> we'll do it more often.